The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading this morning is um, from Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and, his, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Life is short. Have an affair. That's the slogan of a popular online dating service that's marketed to married people. And it's a lie. It's not a lie that life is short, but it is a lie that an affair will make your life more fulfilled, as the slogan implies. This is, this is a, a lie, and an affair tells seductive lies. Claiming to be better than any marriage, more full of life and love, when in reality an affair is full of destruction and death. In Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 3, Solomon says to his son, the lips of a forbidden woman, he would have said man if he was talking to his daughter, so it goes either way, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. An affair tells seductive lies like, like honey on the lips or speech smoother than oil. It tells lies that it leads to love and life, but it actually leads to destruction and death. It's that reality that causes Jesus to issue one of the strongest warnings we hear in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, I say to everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he issues this warning. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Because it is better for you to lose a single member than for your entire body to go into hell. Like, 
Jesus' graphic language, the hyperbolic language, it's do what it takes. Do whatever it takes. Because that is what a child of God does when they hear a word of discipline, a warning, and they're convicted of sin. They do what it takes to put that sin to death. Those who make peace with sin, they are not children of God. This is not about working for your salvation. Do this, work for it, or you're going to go to hell. This is not what that's about at all. It's if you're a child of God, when you hear this warning, this is how you respond. And if you don't respond this way, that's evidence that you are not a child of God. Jesus uses this graphic language of tearing out eyes and cutting off hands in order to shake us, wake us, and save us from sin seducing us to death. Eternal death. Jesus says it's better to undergo painful discipline than to perish in hell. Because here's the deal. While claiming to be loving, sin actually seduces to death. It claims to be full of love, but it seduces to death. Discipline, on the other hand, is truly loving because discipline directs us to life. Sin seduces us to death. Discipline directs us to life. Any, any parent knows the reality of, of that maxim. And this is the reality that the church in Thyatira needs unveiled for them by revelation. Because the church in Thyatira is facing the seduction of an affair. And shades, so are we. In this moment, June 2020, we are surrounded by lips dripping with honey and speech smoother than oil coming through our TVs and our social media feeds. Every news network you can tune into is claiming to have the truth that leads to life, but it is bitter wormwood that goes down to death. Because as Peter proclaimed in John 6, 68, there's only one who has the words of life. To whom else shall we go? Not to the Times, or the Journal, or the Fox, or to MSNBC. No, we go to Jesus. Shades, we need to hear the words of Jesus to the church at Thyatira this morning. And they are words of discipline. We need them to shake us, wake us, and save us from the affair that aims to seduce the church to death. So, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Begin reading with me, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Recall, from our journey so far, recall that the messages to these seven churches, they have what we've been calling a chiastic structure. All you really need to know is that that structure is designed to emphasize what's in the middle. And in the very middle of this structure for us is church number four, Thyatira. And that's surprising because in Asia Minor, Thyatira would be what you would call an unemphasized city. It it was not politically important like Ephesus. It was not culturally important like Smyrna. It was not religiously important like Pergamon. Thyatira was not important like any of these other places we have seen so far. And if this city was unimportant, then its church was even more so. For for this city, you see, had at least found a way to make itself feel important through trade economics 
At the heart of civic life in Thyatira were its trade guilds, especially those of producing fabric and metalwork. You might remember Lydia. Remember Lydia from Acts chapter 16? She was a seller of purple fabric. Do you remember where she was from? Thyatira. Fabric, pottery, and especially metalworking guilds like bronze workers. These were at the heart of civic identity in Thyatira. This is what made this unimportant city feel important. Apollo, the Greek god Apollo, was their patron god who watched over all their works. Apollo was the uh, son of the chief god, Zeus. So this made them proud. The son of God himself watched over their guilds. And their guilds worshipped him. Like if you wanted to be a member, and nearly everybody in Thyatira was, if you wanted to be a member of a guild, that required participating in guild worship and guild feasts where you would sacrifice to Apollo, your patron god who watches over your works. And you would feast on those sacrifices and you would feast on sex. Because spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality go together. They still do. All of this posed a problem for the Christians in Thyatira. Because the one thing that made this unimportant city feel important, these Christians, they simply could not participate in it. That meant that they would lose their civic identity. They would be marginalized and maligned by their city. This unimportant city deemed the church in its midst even more unimportant. Irrelevant. And I'm willing to bet that these Christians in Thyatira felt like that was true. What about you? Our culture deems the church unimportant and irrelevant. You ever feel like that's true? I do. And that feeling, that feeling, feeling makes it tempting for the church to compromise with the surrounding culture instead of remaining faithful to Christ. The church is often tempted towards unfaithfulness, towards an affair with the sins of its city. Idolatry, immorality, pagan ideology. Is this not, I mean, this was a temptation for the church at Thyatira. Is it not still a temptation for our churches? Are we not tempted towards an affair with the spiritual ideologies of our culture? What it says is important and should be the most important in our life for us to pursue. Are we not tempted by the sexual immoralities of our culture and to adopt a morality that they say is orthodox? Has the church in our own city of Birmingham, Alabama, not had a history of adultery with the sin our city is best known for? Racist, white, supremacist ideology. Shades, this is the temptation of the church in every age. And so, this is what gets center stage in the book of Revelation. This is the emphasized middle. The temptation to believe the seductive lie that what culture offers is better than Christ. 
So have an affair with the ideologies, immoralities, and ideologies of the world, and you'll feel more important, you'll feel more relevant, you'll feel more fulfilled and more full of life and love. But shades, in reality, that affair is full of destruction and death. And Jesus is already aiming to unveil that for Thyatira and for us simply by the way he introduces himself. Look at it again, verse 18. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Thyatira tells you to worship Apollo, the son of Zeus, the son of God. But Jesus right here draws on Psalm chapter 2. He does this at the beginning. He'll do it again at the end of this message. He draws on Psalm chapter 2 and claims to be the only true son of God who is sovereign over all people, so he alone is worthy of worship. Why, why, why would you worship Apollo? Because he's the god of the guilds and he watches over your, your works? No, Jesus recalls words from chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 and says that he is the one who truly watches over their works and he watches over their works with eyes like a flame of fire. Now that's some imagery that some metal workers in a city known for its metalworking can understand. Like, like the fires of the forge pierce and purify molten metal. The, this pure gaze of the Son of God pierces the, the mind and the heart. So we should be concerned with what he sees and watches over, not with what Apollo watches over. We should be concerned with his judgment of us, not the culture, for he is the one not only with eyes aflame, but with feet aglow like burnished bronze. You want to talk about some metal workers knowing what that looks like. He's got feet like burnished bronze, armored feet that are swift and powerful to execute judgment. It's like Christ is saying, church and Thyatira, fear not the patron god Apollo that your, your culture tells you to and fear not your culture who decries you as unimportant no let this be a revelation an unveiling of the unseen reality see the unseen reality that christ is king he's the true son of god the patron of all your works and he has placed you in the emphasized middle to declare just how important your faithfulness to him is this is the call at the heart of revelation a call to faithfulness to christ no matter what things look like that's the heart of the book everything is pointing us towards that cling to christ and faithfulness no matter what the world makes it look like around you no matter how tempting the affair is to have with the idolatries immoralities and ideologies of the world Revelation is aiming to unveil for us the unseen reality that sin seduces you to death. But Jesus' call, his words of discipline, direct you to life, to faithfulness, to Christ. Shades, let's hear Christ's life-giving words of discipline that, that he gives to Thyatira, and to us to keep us from the seduction of an affair with death. Christ gives us his loving words of discipline through a word of commendation, accusation, and exhortation. You're probably beginning to notice a pattern in these messages by now. I'll point it out more explicitly in the future. But he gives us a word of commendation, accusation, and exhortation. First, his word of commendation. Christ commends loving works of faith. 
or we could say faithfulness. Loving works of faith, that's what that is, right? It's faithfulness. Christ commends loving works of faith. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I know your works, ergon, it's the Greek word. I tell you because it's important, it shows up four times in this short message. Christ is going to point out their works, he's going to point out Jezebel's works, everybody's works, and his works. The contrast going on here, and he begins with theirs. I know your works, which is not just their actions. Did you notice that? It includes their affections. His flaming eyes see beyond mere action. They see what we can't see. They see to the heart and mind behind their actions. I know that because of the fourfold list of works that he gives. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance that your latter works exceed your first. Their hearts, what we can't see, he sees. Their hearts are filled with love and faith, affection for Christ. And that affection empowers action. Their love and faith empowers service and endurance. Their faith, in other words, isn't fake. We talked about this a lot when we went through the Gospel of John. Y'all remember that short series, right? Talked a lot about what genuine faith is. And their faith isn't fake because like John taught us in his gospel, he teaches us again in Revelation, their faith is full of affection. It empowers action. Affection is at the root. Action is the fruit. Proving that the affection is real. And unlike Ephesus, if you can remember all the way back to the message to the first church we talked about, unlike Ephesus, Ephesus abandoned the love that they had at first. Thyatira hasn't done that. Thyatira works of love exceed those that they did at first. In other words, they are growing in faithfulness to Christ. They're commended for it because Christ wants such faithfulness to continue to the finish. Shades, Christ commends your faithfulness. When I talk to people about Shades Valley, they talk about your faith. They talk about your love and how it produces service and endurance. You want to talk about a story of endurance, let's talk about the story of Shades Valley for a minute. If you don't know it, sit down with somebody who's been here for 30 years. They can tell you a story of endurance that could only happen by true and genuine love and faith in Christ. Christ commends your faithfulness for he wants it to continue because there is an ever-present temptation towards unfaithfulness. Temptation to believe the seductive lie that what the culture offers is better than Christ. So have that affair with the idolatries and moralities and ideologies of the world and feel more important. Feel more relevant, fulfilled, and full of life and love. That's the temptation of the church in every age. We see that clearly through Christ's second word, his word of accusation word of accusation christ rebukes tolerating works of unfaithfulness christ rebukes tolerating works of unfaithfulness verse 20 but i have this against you that you tolerate that woman jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrifice to idols, there's a false teaching that is spreading like gangrene at Thyatira. It's very similar, if you can remember back to the last time we were in the Word together, it's very similar to the false teaching that we saw at Pergamum. And just like the false teaching in Pergamum was illustrated through an Old Testament figure, Balaam, 
Thyatira gets the same treatment via Jezebel. If you want to learn about the historical Jezebel, just go check out some 1 Kings chapter 16. She was a foreign princess who married into the royalty of Israel, and she seduced God's people into idolatry and immorality. She, she got them to worship the fertility god, Baal. You can imagine what kind of acts are involved in worshiping a god of fertility. Spiritual, spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality go together. I've said that twice now. They, they, they go together because what you believe about God shapes what you believe about the body he gave you. Or, as is often the case in our culture, the desires of your body shape what you believe about God. It doesn't matter which way you come at that. You're coming into what we call idolatry. Idolatry and immorality go together. It did for Jezebel in Old Testament Israel, and it did for New Testament Jezebel, most likely not her real name. That's all we got. It did for her in Thyatira. She was this woman in Thyatira who claimed to be a prophetess. There were legit prophetesses throughout the New Testament, but Jesus makes pretty clear she is not one of those. Because she, just like the Old Testament queen that was her namesake, she is seducing God's people into idolatry and immorality. And the way she is doing it is by teaching them that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. In other words, knowing what we know about the situation in Thyatira, in other words, she's saying it's okay to participate in the guild feasts of our city. It's okay to participate in, in the sexual immorality at those feast it's okay for you to be involved in the deep things of satan as verse 24 will call them it's okay for you to be involved in the deep things of satan because this is actually a deeper understanding of the things of god that's most likely what she taught because we know this because it's very similar to what was going on in Pergamum. Most likely she taught you can't understand the depths of the grace of God until you go into the depths of sin. Then you'll know all the more how much grace abounds. It's fine for you to participate in those things anyway because grace already covers that. You're already forgiven. Sin isn't really a thing for you. And besides all of that, all God really cares about anyway is your spirituality, not the works that you do with your body. Jezebel likely taught one or all of these twisted theologies in order to justify the adultery of idolatry and immorality. Most likely, she wants to say that's okay. She wants to justify that because she wants to embrace the economic ideology of her city. Remember, that's where people in Thyatira find their identity. That's where they find their worth. That's where they find their, their purpose in the economic success of their trade. And so Jezebel teaches that any idolatry, any immorality that you've got to participate in pursuit of that pleasure, that's got to be okay. Is it any wonder she was a popular prophetess? People love a prophet who will preach what they want to hear. Affirming their idolatries and ideologies. We, we, we love a good echo chamber. Such prophets 
are always popular. When we get to Revelation chapter 17, that chapter will, it, it will unveil for us that such teachers are not prophets. They're prostitutes. Hawking their souls, their goods, for whatever payment they want to receive in return. In Revelation 17, we're going to see the great prostitute of Babylon. And she will be described with the same language as Jezebel of Thyatira. Jezebel of Thyatira is just a small, localized version of that great prostitute of Babylon. Because the great prostitute of Babylon is not a proclaimer of truth. She's a seductress of sin. Her lips drip with honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, tempting God's people into idolatry and immorality via their ideological promise of pleasure, plunder, and power. Like, shades. The great prostitute, disguised as a prophet, preaches in every age. She still preaches today, saying things like, it's okay to pursue the idol of political power, even if you have to be involved in immorality, even if you have to align yourself with immorality. It's okay, you can justify it, because you can use that political power for Christ. It's okay to pursue the idol of plunder, wealth, even if you have to be involved in immorality. It's okay to do that to achieve your economic goals because Christ wants you to have a blessed bank account. It's okay. It's okay to pursue the idol of sexual pleasure, even if that's outside the bounds of biblical measure, uh, pleasure. I'm a prophetess. I can unpack for you what God really has to say about sexuality. Anytime someone's telling you, what God really has to say? Did God really say? Those words should cause a warning to go off like you've heard them before in Genesis 3. I can show you what God really has to say in his word about sexuality. I can show you how Jesus fits with and affirms our idolatries, immoralities, and ideologies. Shades, these kinds of prophet preachers are everywhere and they are always popular but they are not real prophets they're prostitutes seducing you into an affair with sin that will not give you the life that it promises it will seduce you to death which is why christ rebukes tolerating such works of unfaithfulness within a church we're not to play with this fire. We're to hold one another accountable. He rebukes tolerating such works of unfaithfulness. And he rebukes it with loving words of discipline. Discipline that directs us to life. Sin seduces us to death. Discipline directs us to life. See that in verse 21. Christ says, I gave her, Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I wonder how do these words strike you? 
do they strike you as loving? If not, might I suggest it is likely because we are in need of them. Discipline does not seem loving to the one who is in need of receiving it. I have this old video of Levi, my son, as a toddler, and uh, he keeps messing with my computer that I've got in my lap, and I keep telling him no. And every time I tell him no, he like furrows up his eyebrow. He doesn't like the discipline that he's receiving. Eventually, I like actually tap him right there. I'm like, don't give me the eyebrows. And he collapses on the floor in a puddle of tears. All of my children love this video. They laugh their heads off at it now, including Levi. Why? He wasn't laughing then. So why does he laugh now? Because Hebrews 12.11 is true. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is painful for the one who needs it. But later, we can look back and sometimes even laugh, for we see the discipline was lovingly correcting our own foolishness. The Lord's discipline, Shades, is always loving always aimed at love hebrews 12 6 the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives that this is god loving us treating us as children verse 8 of hebrews 12 will actually go on to say that if we are left without discipline it's because we're not children god disciplines all of his children this is what a good father does with his children verse 10 of hebrews 12, 12 tells us why he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness you don't believe god does this read first corinthians 11 where the church at corinth is abusing the lord's supper and he says i'm going to discipline you and he does paul actually says for this reason some of you are sick and some of you have died w w why why first corinthians chapter 11 and verse 32 but when we are judged by the lord we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world i'm doing this for your good to correct you and to bring you to repentance and back to myself away from condemnation away from where sin leads seducing you all the way down to death read read the very end of proverbs chapter 5 i read proverbs 5 at the beginning where solomon is warning his son about giving in having an affair this is how that proverb ends still talking about the same thing it says he dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he's led astray god disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness that that's true happiness to be truly happy, to not be seduced by the lies of sin that lead to death, but to be directed by discipline towards life, towards holiness, towards having him forever. That's true happiness. And God has done this even for Jezebel. Did you notice? He lovingly gave her time to repent. Like she had been warned with words of discipline, but she refused to repent, proving that she was not really God's child. God's children respond to discipline. This is why we discipline as a church. If one of our members falls into sin, 
we have a responsibility to, to correct one another, hold one another accountable. And this is a loving action. We want to call you back to Christ. And for someone who is ultimately unrepentant in their sin, they eventually will be removed from membership. That's called excommunication. And basically what that's saying is we as a church cannot affirm that you are a genuine child of God because a genuine child of God responds to discipline. And even that final action is taken in hopes of waking and shaking and saving and bringing to repentance and bringing the person back to restoration. It's like a parent who kicks their rebellious child out of their house. This may not look loving, but it is. This is all I have left to wake you up and bring you home. He lovingly gave Jezebel time to repent. She did not. So she's not a child of God. She's proven that. And so judgment is coming upon her. She will be thrown onto a sick bed. The place of her seduction, the bed, it will become the place it will be revealed for what it truly is, a place of sickness. We're told that all who have committed adultery with her, not literally, but all who have followed her teaching into an affair with idolatry, immorality, and the ideology of the city, they're going to share in her pain. Unless, did you catch that in verse 22? Unless they repent of her works. Jesus is doing the same thing for those committing adultery with Jezebel that he did for Jezebel. He's lovingly giving them time to repent. He's warning them with words of discipline designed to shake, wake, and save them from being seduced to death. These words are coming to them through the church, reading and sharing these words with them. His discipline is designed to direct them to life, for them to return to him through repentance. If they do, they will show themselves to be true children of God. But if they refuse... They will prove themselves to be children of someone else. Someone like Jezebel. And their end is not discipline, it's death. They follow the seduction of their mother all the way down to death. Look at verse 23. And I will strike her, Jezebel's. I will strike Jezebel's children dead. Even this is ultimately loving shades. It is the loving removal of of those who bring death and destruction. God is one day going to do this in total. We ask Him for it all the time. Would you bring death and destruction to an end? And He will. Because He loves His creation. I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works piercing sight of Christ's flaming eyes. It, it sees not just our works of action, it also sees our works of affection. He sees our heart. And He knows if our heart belongs to sin or to Him. And He is just. He gives to each according to their works. That doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean that salvation is by works. Because He has been defining for us throughout this entire passage what He means by works. And it's not merely action, it's also affection. He searches hearts to see the works of hearts, to see where your affection truly lies. And your works of action should just bear testimony to where your affections are. Your work of worship should 
overflow into the actions of your life. Your actions reveal a love for Jezebel-like sins or a love for Christ. What, what do our works reveal about us, Shades? Like this morning, through Christ's word of discipline to Thyatira, you, do I, do we hear a word of discipline to us? Have you bought into the political ideologies of this world? Have you bought into the sexual immorality of this world, the idols of pleasure, plunder, and power? Have you been wrapped up in the historic sin of our city? Racist white supremacy? Christ's words of rebuke for our unfaithfulness, His words of discipline this morning, that's Christ loving us. Opening our eyes to the affairs that are after us. May we open our ears to hear Jesus' words of discipline lovingly calling us to repent and return to life in Him. Shades, don't be seduced to death by sin, but by discipline be directed towards life in Christ. He exhorts us all to life in Him. This is the third and final word of Christ to Thyatira and us, a word of exhortation. Christ exhorts faith-filled perseverance in His works to the finish. This is a word of exhortation. Christ exhorts faith-filled perseverance in His works to the finish. I hope you can see that in this text. Look at it, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, in other words, those who aren't committing adultery with Jezebel, those who aren't buying or teaching, those who aren't her children, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are, are broken in pieces, even as, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are many in Thyatira who haven't embraced the false teaching of Jezebel. They've, they've rejected the idea that it's okay to participate in the deep things of Satan as if that was actually understanding the deep things of God. They don't participate in the idolatry and immorality of their guilds. They reject the satanic ideology of their cities. And, and perhaps that has them issuing a sigh of relief as they read this message. Like, whew! All Jesus' words of discipline for those Jezebel people? We in the clear. And perhaps right now you are feeling that same sigh of relief. Whew. All Jesus' words of discipline for people who buy into our modern idolatries of plunder, power, and pleasure, materialism, political power, the sexual morality of our culture. Jesus' words of discipline are or for the people who buy into the idolatries of our, our, our city's history, racism, white supremacy, all of that kind of stuff. Phew, I'm glad I'm in the clear because I don't buy into any of those things. Before Thyatira and we issue a sigh of relief, 
Jesus has a word of discipline for us too. Remember, this message is actually specifically addressing those who don't hold to Jezebel's teaching. Like the whole thing. The fact that he talks about the discipline towards those is kind of an aside. But the message is addressed to everybody else. The rebuke is for them. For us. Because even though these Christians in Thyatira don't hold the Jezebel's teaching, they tolerate it. And Jesus says, toleration will not do. I have one burden to lay on you. Look back at verse 25. I do not lay on you any other burden. Only what? Only this. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Don't tolerate. Hold fast. Don't be neutral. Hold fast. That's an action. That's not a sitting back. Don't be neutral. Don't tolerate. Hold fast. Remember, if you remember back to the message to Pergamum, we saw in Pergamum that compromise begins by being neutral with sin. And so Jesus says, don't be neutral, Thyatira. Hold fast. So so you may not eat food sacrificed to idols, but is there any idolatry to be found in your heart? Don't tolerate that. Don't be neutral with that. Hold fast. So you you may not be participating in the sexual immorality of temple feasts, but is there any sexual immorality to be found in your heart? Any lust? I mean, Jesus says that's adultery of the heart. Don't tolerate that. Don't be neutral with that. That is eye-gouging, hand-cutting-off kind of stuff. Hold fast. Shades, what about us? We may outright reject the idolatries of our culture with regard to power and wealth. But is there, any idol- is there any idolatry with regard to politics and materialism in our hearts? Don't tolerate that. Don't be neutral with that. Hold fast. Shades, we may reject the outright sexual immorality that our culture embraces, but is there any sexual immorality to be found in our hearts? Lust? Pornography? Late night channel surfing? Don't tolerate that. Don't be neutral with that. Eye gouge, hand cut off, hold fast. Call in your brothers and sisters. Call in the church for the purpose of discipline, of pointing you back to life in Christ. We, we dare not, shades, we dare not look at the Jezebel-embracing culture of our world, point at them, and proudly proclaim, thank God we're not like that. That's the heart of the Pharisee in Luke 18. You remember this guy who looks at a tax collector while he prays, and he praises the Lord that he is not like all those other sinners? can't be like that. No, we must long to be like the tax collector of Luke 18, who without even daring to lift his eyes towards heaven, beat his breast and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says that's the posture of a true child of God. And I wonder, is that the posture that we as a body have taken over the past couple of weeks? As our streets have been filled with protests over 
the injustices that are a result of generations of racism and white supremacy? I wonder. Have we found ourselves hearing about those injustices, hearing about racism, hearing about white supremacy, have we found ourselves going, well, thank God that's not me. Thank God I'm not like all those sinners who are guilty of white supremacy. After all, I reject the outright idolatry of racism. Shades, that may be true, but if it is also true that I reject the outright idolatry of power, wealth, and sexual immorality, and yet I'm willing to own the fact that there are ways those sins still invade my heart, then can I not admit the same is true for racism and sins of supremacy? Do I really believe that I struggle with all other categories of sin, but with this one, I have successfully eradicated it from my heart. Shades, I, I want to make a personal confession to you. I confess to you that this is what the Holy Spirit has been convicting me of these past few weeks. Just for as long as I remember my entire life, I have rejected the outright idolatry of racism and white supremacy. Preached against it. My first or second year here at Shades, I preached a sermon out of Acts chapter 10 entitled, Is the Gospel More Powerful Than Racism? And Shades, I confess to you that I have let myself believe that sin was no longer something I participated in. Like a Pharisee, I have been thankful that I am not like all those other sinners. But shades, the Spirit is opening my eyes and I have been beating my breast and crying out, Lord, have mercy. Reveal to me blind spots, sins I can't see. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to reveal to me blind spots I have with everything else. Why not also blind spots here? If I reject the idea that I have blind spots here, is that not already me asserting some kind of I'm supreme over that sin? I'm crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. And shades, here's the good news of the gospel. He has, he is having mercy on me, leading me to reject neutrality and to hold fast. Hold fast to what? Verse 25, only hold fast to what you have to what you have until I come. In other words, those works I talked about back in verse 19. Works of faith, love, service, patient endurance. Hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works. Those aren't ultimately your works. They're my works. Keep them until the end. Hold fast to all of that, Thyatira. Christ's works are those of love, faith, service, and endurance. So I don't want to be neutral when it comes to racism and the sin of supremacy. No, by faith in Christ, I want to love, serve, and endure. Shades, I don't have a lot of answers for you right now with everything that's going on. I don't have a lot of specifics as to what even this looks like in my own life right now. I'm in learning mode right now. But I know it at least looks like this. It looks like lamenting, listening, and loving.
in this moment. And I believe, it is my conviction, that the Spirit is at work exposing racial injustices in our country collectively, in our hearts individually. I think, just preliminary baby thoughts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a lot of this wrong, Shades. I'm praying for lots of grace, but I'm, I'm no longer willing to not try. In the midst of this, I think this is how the church can lead instead of being neutral. First, we can lament. It's what we've been doing together as a body. Lamenting racial injustices, lamenting loss of life, lamenting the brokenness of our divided country. And I think, Shades, I think we've been lamenting well. I think we've been lamenting well. But I believe that Christ empowers us to do more than lament. He empowers us to listen. Over the past two weeks, so many different conversations and I have the two that stick out most. I sat down with my friend, uh, Pastor Thomas Wilder of Bethel Baptist Church Collegeville here in our town. It's the most bombed, sit, most bombed church in American history. And I talked on the phone a couple of times with my mentor, one of my fathers in the ministry. You've heard me talk about him a lot, Dr. Robert Smith Jr. One of those conversations you can listen to is, is our podcast uh, last week in Shades Midweek. But both of these incredible men of God at various points said the same thing to me. They told me, they said, Jonathan, one of the greatest gifts of love you can give is to listen. You don't have to agree with what's being said, just listen. Dr. Smith, he couches everything he says in, 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 in Scripture. He, the man can't speak without talking about the Bible. And in talking about listening, he took took me to Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 15, and there the prophet Ezekiel sits down by the Kabar River with the exiles. And he sits in silence for seven days. Just listening to those who are suffering. He doesn't lecture them. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't run away if they use words or phrases that he doesn't like or slogans he doesn't like in order to describe their pain. He listens to understand what they mean. We need to do the same thing, Shades. Do, do we listen to learn why a phrase like Black Lives Matter is even needed? It shouldn't be needed, but it is. Do we listen to learn why that's needed? And, and even if we disagree with some of the convictions and the conclusions of the organization that goes by that name, can we not agree on the patent truth of the phrase itself? That black lives matter and lovingly listen to those who say it through tears? Ezekiel listens to the suffering exiles. And then, he doesn't even talk once he's done listening. That's what Job's friends do. Job's friends come in Job chapter 2 and listen to him in the midst of his suffering for seven days in silence. And then they start yapping. And it's the worst thing they do. Ezekiel listens in silence for seven days. And then, for eight chapters, he listens to the Lord. To the Word of God. Then and only then does he speak. Shades, I believe that this is what the Spirit is calling us to do, to lament, to weep with those who weep, and then to listen. 
Listen to them and listen to God and what His Word has to say about the sin of racism and white supremacy or any form of supremacy. Only then will we have anything to say and prayerfully it's not our Word, it's God's. We lament, we listen, and we love. In other words, I do think there is a time where we have to move from simply listening into action. That's what love does. Love is an action. I, I don't know exactly what action. I'm listening and learning, but, but I do know this. Whatever action we take, the action must be loving. Shades, as we walk through these waters and listen and learn, we may even come to different conclusions about the loving actions that we should take, and that's okay, but we all aim for love, and love acts. Shades, let us not be neutral and tolerate any of our sin. But let us hold fast to the works that Jesus empowers until He comes again. He exhorts us to faith-filled perseverance in His works to the finish. And to the one who finishes, look at how this passage concludes. To the one who finishes, who conquers and keeps Christ's works until the end, Christ says, I will give them the authority over the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father the son of god ends where he began echoing psalm chapter 2 and promising that this church this church in thyatira that's being made to feel unimportant by its city he says i will give you the place of ultimate importance the city of thyatira who doesn't rule anything so church they try to rule over you they will be placed under your feet along with all enemies and you will rule from my city the new jerusalem and that's not all verse 28 and i will give them the morning star which revelation 22:16 will identify as jesus christ himself that comes from a prophecy out of numbers chapter 24 that prophesied a star would rise out of jacob a ruler with a scepter in other words we are being promised we will reign with the one who reigns. You feel unimportant? Irrelevant? Do you see the unseen reality? We will reign with the one who reigns. That is a promise to all who are faithful. No affair could ever compare with that. Shades Valley. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.